The Microsoft Azure Marketplace is the premier destination for developers' software needs, certified and optimized to run on Azure. Here Technologies provides an enterprise-grade SLA-backed location suite consisting of maps and location data for all Azure apps. You can access them via serverless functions, deployable solution for web app backends, and real-time data streams, now accessible within the Azure Marketplace. Simply go to t.her.is slash hereazure to get started. That's t.her.is slash hereazure. This episode of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Datadog, a real-time monitoring platform that unifies metrics, logs, and distributed request traces from your cloud containers and orchestration software. Track the health and performance of your dynamic containers, apps, and services with rich visualizations and machine learning-driven alerts. Datadog's new cluster agent streamlines data collection from large container clusters and allows you to auto-scale Kubernetes workloads based on any metric you're already collecting with Datadog. To start monitoring your container clusters, sign up for a free trial today and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Visit dd.netrocks.com to get started. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, believe it or not, we just got back from Poland, even though that was a long time ago. Yeah, this is this show's coming out in like late December. So yeah, welcome to time shifting. Yeah, so, but you know, from our perspective, it's October 28th and mm. uh, Dev Intersection was a gas and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> See, now you're double dive shifting. He's like, oh, we're heading and behind him. Yeah. Like, My Christmas was great. Yeah, how was your Christmas, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> it sorry. was amazing. I'm sorry. But, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about timeless things here. Well, you know, just maybe not month to month timely, but... Certainly timely with uh, Michelle Leroux Bustamante. She's coming up in just a minute. But first, we have this little matter of better know a framework. All right, dude, what do you got? Now, I kind of feel bad talking about this because it's a Kickstarter that is way over its goal and it's done. Right. Like as of this recording, it has 11 hours to go. <laughs> <laughs> so the, we don't publish that fast. There's no way you can get it's in on no it. Way. We, you, However, it's so cool that I figure even if the Kickstarter is done, they're surely taking orders by now. Oh yeah, I mean it is. They are trying to make a product, right? So yeah, they're since they're over their goal, you know that's going to happen. Well, you don't know. What if they completely fall in their face? All of these things are possible. Well, oh, well, okay, but. They pledged four hundred and fifty thousand. They made one point six five million dollars okay. with eleven mm. hours to go. I think they, they pretty haven't, much got they it. They haven't made it yet. You know, if they've underpriced their product, mm. selling this many copies of underpriced could really wreck them too. Like I hope right. it goes well for them. I do too. Well, anyway, it's called Tilt Five. Okay. Tilt five. Just Google Tilt Five and you'll come to it on Kickstarter. Uh, holographic tabletop gaming. So it's Google goggles, right? And they're clear. They're not, they don't look like a, a you know, a um, HoloLens or anything like that. You can see through them. They just kind of look like senior citizen glasses, you know, like. Yeah, but what are Google goggles? Where did that come from? I just mean they're, they're glasses. They're, they're specs. They're. All right. Yeah. yeah they're specs that you put on. They kind of look like, you know. If you see senior citizens driving in Florida or Q-tips as we call them, they, that's where, <laughs> you know, the, the sunglasses that go all the way around in the side, they kind of look like that. All right. But they got nothing to do with Google at all. No, Goo Goo Goggles, I said. Oh, okay. I that's thought you a, said Google. No, that's no, no, no. Goo Goo Goggles. That's like a Dr. Seuss thing. Anyway, so here's the story. They You can see around you, but also they have this tabletop board that acts as a place where holograms show up and they use this for gaming so i watched the video and the lead designer there says it's kind of like the best of video games and the best of board games put together so you can sit around a table put this thing on the table and sit around and everybody's got their tilt five goggles on or whatever re augmented reality glasses 
And you can play this game where you see crazy stuff happening on the board, but you're using cards, you're using dice, you're moving pieces around the board. So it really is a nice amalgam of board games and video games. The other cool thing is that it comes with a few tools, like it has a wand that you can use to make things happen. And also you can play with other people remotely. So if there's three of you together and one other player somewhere else, they can play remotely and you, you all get to interact. So I think this is really cool. I'm not necessarily like a D&D guy, you know, which it looks like a lot of the games that they're showing are kind of Dungeons and Dragons games. But, but I certainly love the idea of having virtual card games and board games with people, um, you know, or enhanced experiences. It just, it looks like one of these shots was Settlers of Catan, which would be great. You don't have to build the board. You can play with the different rule sets. You can play remotely. Like, right. Just board games. It doesn't have to be fancier than that. Right. And and it's really cool because, you know, video games have sort of torn us apart as communities, right? We We sit in our rooms and we play these games, maybe with people online, and we become very isolated. And board games are great, except that, you know, if your family is like mine, you end up throwing the peanut butter on each other and storming out and calling each other names. But you know what I'm saying? Like, that's the, that's the best part about board games is that interaction with your friends or your family. And this way, it just kind of meshes the two together. I really like it. That'll be interesting. Yeah. 350 bucks a pair of glasses and everybody has to have one. Yeah. So that's what I got. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1529, the one we did back in March of 2018 with one Michelle Bustamante talking about, quote, surviving microservices. Because I don't, I think they're a thing that needs to be survived. Well. <laughs> anyway, it was a fun conversation. You know, Michelle's been leading us down the path of what it takes to make containers really work and how microservices do their thing. And Thomas Betts. Remember Thomas Betts? As a matter of fact, we met one of his friends in Poland last week. We did indeed. Thomas Betts had this comment. Admittedly, that's from a a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. He said, early in the show, Michelle mentioned that it's difficult to debug microservices running in containers. I'd recommend checking out the Squash debugger. Squash. a link to GitHub. It's an open source uh, library, but uh, it's a server component. It runs on Kubernetes. It's also got a VS Code extension. And the creator of Squash, which is Adit Levine, has given a presentation about it in QCon mm-hmm. and talked all about it. And you can see her presentation online. Good. And how about getting her on the show to talk about it, which I think is kind of a cool idea. That's a great Thomas. idea. I'm, yeah. Tools specifically for debugging stuff in microservices and containers. That's very cool. I wonder if the Visual Studio Code extension is called Squish. Nice. <laughs> Squish and squash. <laughs> that we're going to go. Yeah. Sort of squash light. I'll have to ask Michelle. She's heard about squash. Mm-hmm. And uh, Thomas, thanks for being a long time listener. It was fun chatting with your friend a bit. And we sent some pictures over and a copy of Music to Go By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Go By, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or on Facebook. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, We'll send you a copy of Music to Code by. And follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet and uh, in 3D, if you don't mind. Nice. That's how we roll. The dice. You, have you never played Settlers of Catan? Because the logical thing to do is to ask if you had wood for sheep. I don't even know what that means, but no, no. Settlers of Catan players think that's hilarious. Just wool know, that's, for sheep? Well, uh, uh, wood for sheep. Wood for sheep. Yes, I got wood, wood you sheep. got sheep. Let's trade kind of thing. Let's make a deal. Yeah. Okay. Got for sheep. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's bring on our good friend, Michelle LaRue Bustamante. You know, she's founder and CIO of Saliance at saliance.net, S-O-L-L-I-A-N-C-E.net. Also founder of Policy Server. She's a Microsoft Regional Director and Microsoft Azure MVP. And she's got years of experience in many fields, including software architecture and design, identity and access management, cloud computing technologies, security compliance, and DevOps. And also is a really good author. And I remember reading her books long, long ago. Welcome, Michelle. Hi. Yeah. Hi. How are you, how are you guys doing? We're okay. 
Uh, we should also mention that Michelle has a history of telling naughty jokes Uh-oh. at the end Uh-oh. of her <laughs> .NET Rocks shows. So for coming to the end and you're anticipating a joke, make sure sensitive grandmothers and small children are out of earshot. And that is a leading reputation to start with, isn't it? I know, really. I mean, nobody else has that reputation on this show. Including panel discussions, this would be your 22nd episode. Wow. Wow. Just so you know. Wow. But I think we've known each other almost all those years, which is really scary. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a a long time. Because we met at VBits. Yes. In 90. Yeah. 94. Do we say that out loud? Is 94? that like a thing you should record, right? 94? <laughs> yeah. I met I met Carl in 94 and Richard, I don't remember when we met, but it's been a long time, which is oh, why I don't time. remember. It's, yeah. it's I only tw- remember the 94 years. because it was around the time I was writing, wait for it, instant BB animation. Yeah. <laughs> for some reason, you asked me to write the foreword to that book. I did. I did fun. because we met... We met at a bar at Vibis with yeah. your friends from Canada. And since I was Canadian, we all had a chat turned into a friendship, which was great. And it's lasted many, many years. Yep. So far, so good, Carl. And now I'm even working for you guys, which is always great. Yeah. We have a lot of fun, don't we? We do. I learn a lot. Lots, lots to do. We all learn a lot from everybody. That's what I love about the organization we've building we're building it together right like with all of our partners which is fantastic it's a really great synergy right lots yeah. of smart people working together yeah and even though you've been on 20 some odd times we never run out of things to talk about and i got a feeling today is no different because we just keep learning all all the time new stuff yeah more experience yeah, ever-changing uh, landscapes that we face. And, you know, obviously microservices is a big one, but there's so much that goes into that that is, you know, nuanced and, and around, you know, cloud and migration and security and, you know, compliance and, mm. and, and just even design and decisions around design and how do you deal with tech debt and, uh, you know, managing lots of moving parts. And as you brought up with the, the tool suggestion there, Richard, you know, the debugging and other considerations, you know, this is just, it's such a, it touches everything. Right. Sure. And um, yeah. And there's, and there's certainly layers of complexity depending on the customer and the needs, because, you know, you really got to be careful. You don't go all in without knowing what you're getting into. Right. Go do what you need to do, not more. Right. Yep. So right. are you finding, are you routinely now sort of taking apart classical SOA apps into microservices? Is that the main gig or is it new architectures for new software? It, it's really both, um, yeah. you know, and, and it kind of spans across many people, even beyond myself in, in the organization, right? Like I, I have a microservices practice that I co-run with um, um, Chris Haddad is a big part of it. He's one of my colleagues I've known since like the early 2000s. Um, and then we have a security practice, which I co-run with Brock Allen of Identity Server because we also built a product, policy server product. So mm. our teams within those two areas are growing a lot. And on the identity side, we, we do a lot of identity server builds and containerize those for customers. So a lot of those are green. Um, and then on the microservices practice side, there's everything from very, very complex, long-term, uh, dedicated, you know, migrations that could be spanning four or more years. Um, and they're very deliberate in how you approach it because you got to keep the wheels running on the existing system. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, migrations that are a little bit faster because there's a bit cleaner of a seam maybe for taking out pieces of functionality and going full on for, you know, larger chunks at a time and maybe a little less uh, design intensive or even, dare I say, a little less uh, security and compliance related, right? It's industry dependent. You can spend a lot of money on doing every single thing carefully and dotting every I and T. And then you've got to be realistic sometimes on the other end of the spectrum, which is not everybody can afford to, um, you know, try to get everything right day one. They have to hit the, the areas that are of the most critical importance. I, I got to think when folks call you about an existing, you know, SOA application, they're having pain somewhere. And it, it is microservices a solution to that pain? Like, is it just pulling out the bits that are hurting people and, and make them better? 
sometimes. Sometimes it's it's sort of a, uh, you know, there's an area of the application that, you know, they cannot get traction with new features. So right. the idea of having uh, the ability to fast track new releases with less risk um, and or just attach or bolt on new features in front of existing functionality that has to continue. And so that's where the API first you know, model uh, or design approach for microservices solution comes in kind of handy because, you know, then you have a little less fear about um, the migration strategy. You can put a new API up front. Uh, you can structure well-defined domains for the new APIs and then call into old systems or do data sync or, or do, you know, uh, event publishing if that exists. So mm-hmm. it, it will depend on the application, right? And what's available to you and, how many APIs you migrate also depends on where the pain points are. Sometimes it's about, you know, maybe reach for, you know, third-party development uh, ecosystems that customers will pay for, right? So then you start building out these new APIs for like a middle tier to your business functionality in, in your organization. Um, and that's a new revenue stream, maybe, aside from what already runs. I, I do really like that statement you opened with, which is you're struggling to iterate quickly enough over a particular feature set that obviously is an opportunity for the company, but the right. way they built their software in the past is impairing them from moving fast enough. Right. And and that that is a very common problem. Um, I mean, sometimes it's just one set of features. Like I take sure. even an identity system. Um, the biggest draw on customer support, the biggest pain point on customer support is password resets and email changes and things like that. Right. So if you can't produce self-service features around that, that, that sort of offload the support need, then you literally are spending money, lots of it. Yeah. And, and that code's written like, why are you writing that? Well, you know, and maintaining it. You know, there's, right. we should talk about over architecture, which is kind of a problem in the industry, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes people code themselves into a corner because they've got so many layers, they can't even trace, uh, you know, they can't press F10 fast enough <laughs> to trace the code through a process. Right. Yeah. Well, well, I guess I'm not, you know, over architecture is definitely a problem. Under architecture is also a problem. Yeah. Lack of governance over tech debt is also a problem. And and I would say if there's one learning that, you know, over these years, like, you know, we've been doing this for a while with different size companies and, and every project has got its own personality. Mm-hmm. But the thing that that's really common across the board is um, decisions are hard, right? When you're doing the, the microservices design, um, people will, will, you know, deliberate on, on some things that they just, they're afraid to make a decision. And, and it's because, you know, you want to make sure you got it all right before you go live. And I think that while that's admirable, not making a decision is also really bad because what you're, what you're not keeping your mind open to is you can refactor and you should refactor and you will refactor and you will have to refactor. Like there is no getting the domain slicing perfect across the board. These are nuanced. You have to think it through and make a decision. And then later you might realize, ah, you know, this really belongs in that domain or, or this really needs to be maybe broken into two more sets of microservices that are isolated from one another. Um, and, and if you think about just tech debt in any application, why does it build up? Because people don't go back, refactor, review. Right. So we're in a world now where, in a way, microservices as a you know approach to solution development is forcing everybody to do things that they should have already been doing. That goes to automated practices and DevOps predictability that goes to monitoring and logging and having visibility um, that goes to design and, you know, thinking up front, but that also goes to refactoring and, and tech debt governance and continuing to review and look for common practices across the team so that everybody can learn from each other. So, you know, large orgs can do all of that if they can commit the teams to it. And smaller organizations arguably maybe have less to do. So maybe it's just a little bit more agile the way they approach that. But they should still all be doing all those things. 
Refactoring is a problem if everybody who touches that code isn't on board and understands the refactoring, right? Have you seen that be a problem before? Well, that's where domain ownership comes in, right? If you can keep the team small and focused on a domain, then there's synergy within that domain and ownership within that domain. So, Mm. uh, you know, a domain team, you know, could be, let's say, the size of a a scrum team or two, right? And that's it. So, you know, ideally, you've got around nine people per team. That's the ideal scenario. Right. And, you know, maybe more. uh, We actually have some larger customers where it's kind of double that because we're pairing, you know, one-to-one, our team, their team. Um, we, we don't always do it as an exact match like that, but with a really large project, you need to do that so that the learning comes early with everybody. And then, you know, I think there's other ways to slice that, but I guess the point is the size should be around a scrum team and then you could refactor and communicate about that with each other easily. Right. Right. Sure. Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. And it's just pulling all those different pieces together and figuring out what you really need to work on. And people don't document technical debt. Like you have to kind of find it. Well, so that's the other thing. And I think that this is um, really relevant actually uh, to especially those larger organizations because visibility into what happens or what's going on in the solution is hard. But if you have an API contract first approach with all of the microservices within each domain, then you should just be able to use tools that give you... um, you know, searchability across all the APIs so that you can reuse. Um, and, and you need good processes around that, right? There should be architects that own the API governance and that own the consistency of the API's interfaces and that make sure that we have a way to search and find and discover APIs. Um, you can use API management tools for that. That's a common approach as well. And are you talking specifically about Azure, like their tools? But it could be Azure. I mean, I think that, you know, there's other tools too that maybe can complement Azure, right? So mm-hmm. API management as a platform for, as a gateway to access to APIs, licensing, uh, API security, uh, you know, network boundaries, that, that's, you know, routing, you know, th- those are all interesting features. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there's just the fact that you have all these well-documented, you know, uh, open API contracts. And that those could get sucked in programmatically into tools that let you, you know, manage, you know, find, discover, uh, discover endpoints so that within the, the development organization, people can see, oh, yeah, we already have an endpoint that does this. Uh, we don't have to reinvent that, right? Like, it's, it's again, comes back to governance and visibility. Do you have particular practices or how do you make APIs visible to the rest of the organization? Yeah, that's that's got to be done through, you know, platform tools that that surface up. So we have like a whole approach to, you know, how do you deal with documentation around a microservices project? And a lot of times Mm -hmm. we use enterprise architect as a tool that is sort of a little bit further beyond Visio, right? Like Visio is Mm -hmm. is good for diagramming and, and, and reusable assets to some extent, but enterprise architect can be used for, you know, maybe, uh, uh, a little bit more around documented use cases and, you know, actors that are part of, you know, the, the, the use cases, you know, the types of customers and partners and, and users and, and things like reusable entities and artifacts so that when you change it in one place, it applies to everything else. And then right. within there, you don't document your APIs, but you document the domain. Like here is what, you know, the security or identity domain looks like. Here's what the, I don't know, uh, accounts customers and other domains look like within your, you know, whatever it is your company does, right? Could be products, could be, you know, fulfillment, could be shopping carts. I don't know. Right. Um, And so whatever those domains are, you need to describe them. So there's this high level documentation that could be used by an architect to then drive development. Then you have API contracts that come out of that that define models, right? For request response and access to functionality within um, those APIs might be business domain APIs, but then sometimes you have a place in the UI that needs a fit for purpose API for an efficient spa. So sometimes we call those experience services and those might either call other services within the domain or they may use a cache or they may have their own, you know, read store that gets projected or generated. So there's a few patterns there, but mm-hmm. the bottom line is you have these APIs and, and they've got 
you know, clear documentation. So that's the source of truth, right? Enterprise architect and then, you know, your API contracts. And then we use CodeGen to produce a lot of the code from the API contracts mm-hmm. because that will help you with consistency around how do you, you know, rig up the, the hosts and the security model and policies in the host for the APIs? How do you rig up telemetry, right? You can put, you know, decorations on the API contract, uh, the mustache files that will generate, you know, your, your, your .NET core or your ASP.NET core or your, you know, Java or whatever target, right? Um, and then that gives you governance now. Now architects have the governance around, okay, these are consistent things. And, you know, we've learned something about security on the API that's going to go in the middleware. We're going to make sure that these patterns are followed across all the other APIs. And then that way, code gen updates go to the developers and they do like a, a merge update. And if it changed the shape of the contract, like a V2, they're going to pick that up in the, in the, in the CICD process, right? Um, and uh, so there are lots of interesting things we can do there, but the source of truth, what coming back to docs is enterprise architect, then API contracts, which produce code, right? So you know that that's the source of truth, including telemetry. Um, and then I guess the next area is always the gray area we end up talking about, right? Which is how do you take an enterprise architect design and teach a developer, like, here's the kind of components we think you need to build, uh, this is a consumer. This is a publisher. This is an API. Um, how do we map that to components that deploy to Azure, right? So which things create a new Cosmos, you know, target uh, uh, container, which used to be called collection, right? Um, which ones produce, you know, a new set of tables or schemas uh, that need that? Uh, which ones, you know, produce X amount of APIs or, or you know, containers that need to be deployed, right? Um, and then, you know, we need a key vault and we need, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe a, an API management entry for licensing third party access, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of stuff there, right? And I think the, the, the source of truth is always the code at some point and then the actual platform you write, but you have this period in the middle where someone needs to know how do we map that properly? And then once you build your automation scripts, now the source of truth is a Terraform or, or, you know, ARM templates or whatever it is you use to deploy that thing, right? Right. That's a mouthful. And yeah, it's a mouthful. And it, you just you just basically described an architecture from from top to bottom, and all the 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 complexity therein. There's a lot of moving parts here, and a lot yeah. of stuff to know. Yep. Yeah. But you know, that's why patterns are helpful. That's why it's you know it's great to work with. I mean, I'm pretty fortunate, right? Because I get to, you know, we do new things all the time because there's new platform features, you know, in Azure, for example. And, you know, when we need, you know, the right person that can help us with, you know, security center, log analytics and rock in some dashboards, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you know, you need people that focus on that one thing, right? So that they can help you do that right faster. And so that's the whole goal, right? Do it right faster. Because, you know, do it right is a hard thing to say, right? There's always mm. many ways to do something right. Um, but lessons learned is always good to know and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah. So, when you talk about knowledge, right? Like, there's just there's so many things and no one person can know everything. So, you really have to um, kind of collect it from, from various places. Well, I've had the opportunity to work with you now for several months. And I really, I really admire the way that you um, sort of go where you hold meetings and you go over things and how they work and you know developers are often chomping at the bit to talk about implementation details and i really like the way that you start from thirty thousand feet and dig into details you know slowly methodically uh so even though these things we know we've talked about in the past and we understand them we want to go through this whole story from the beginning no, I, I really, really do appreciate that. Wow, thank you. Thoroughness. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think everybody has a style, right? I mean, I have, I have maybe some pros and cons with my style, right? But I, I like um, the strategic, uh, you know, layer, right? Is super important. Like, why are we even doing this? What's the goal for the customer? Right. What's the benefit to the customer? Everything always starts from what's the value the customer's getting right. and what is it they really need. But when you come down to, once you've got that layer taken care of, because that's the number one thing, the next part being the design, as you say, um, 
the thing that I find is, you know, I work with some pretty smart people that sometimes would like to just, you know, I mean, they've already got it, right? They've already kind of figured, okay, here's where we're going to go with that. Um, But when I slow it down sometimes to sort of think through all the details, that's the part of me that's a bit conflicted, right? I'm detail-oriented, and yet I understand the architecture needs. Right. You always come at it from the customer's perspective and bring it back to that. Yeah. Right. I always have to pop up again, but I but I also find I'm the type of person that needs to sort of really think through all the details um, because that's how I catch stuff. It's how I find like, you know, a use case that we missed. Right. I need to contemplate for a minute and yep. then pull it back because then I can come back and say, ah, OK. Uh, and sometimes there's people that can, you know, kind of high level that and jump right to the, OK, here's how we're going to do that. And it'll probably catch, you know, 80% of the use cases. Mm -hmm. So I do my thing to find the other 20. Um, And I think that it's good to have all the people kind of working the way they do because that's what adds all the value, right? Sure. Hang on one second, Michelle, for this very important message. Hey, Carl and Richard here. We'd like to tell you all about the upcoming conferences NDC is hosting all around the world. NDC London will be January 27th through the 31st. Go to ndc-london.com to register. We're going to be recording some episodes there. Come see us in the fishbowl. NDC Security Oslo is January 22nd through the 24th. Early bird discount for NDC Security Oslo is December 2nd. Go to ndc-security.com to register. And check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. All right, and we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. That's Richard Campbell out there in Canada. And uh, from San Diego, it's Michelle LaRue-Bustamante, and we're talking surviving microservices. All the things you need to know. All the things. And then some. (laughs) Everything. I think the the last show we did was a surviving one. I really wanted to get into... You know, it's one thing to design microservices and set them up in containers and the Kubernetes and all these different techs. When do you when are you ready to turn it on, or can you turn it on gradually? This this almost seems like one of those big leaps you have to take. Yeah, so I, I going live is hard, mm. and um, going to production in general is hard, and it varies in terms of people's aggressiveness to get to production based on, you know, uh, again, comes back to organization needs, right? Uh, if you're in healthcare, government, finance, and you're dealing with sensitive data of any mm-hmm. kind, mm-hmm. Um, you are not going to prod until you are 100% certain you've covered everything. And, and this is very interesting because um, covering everything in security in general is hard because there are so many risks. Mm. Um, we work with people that do nothing but you know, threat modeling, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, really smart, uh, you know, team around that. And, and you know, it, it comes back to having tools, frameworks you can use to quickly identify which are the threat models we're worried about enough to go and do a full-blown threat model because you can't threat model every use case. Right. Some things you just know, this is going to be okay. We've got, you know, API token security. We know that we've got the scopes defined. We know that we don't do anything but HTTPS, et cetera, et cetera, right? There's certain things you can just say, yep, okay, those cover these risks. Um, and then there's go live where, you know, sensitive data is going to be moved over and you have to look at all the data flows from end to end and what's the risk of exposure if something right. leaks or if somebody gets to the wrong data. And if the risk is really high, then you start doing threat models around those specific use cases um, same thing goes with, you know, even just the risks of keys escaping and things that you're doing to manage your infrastructure. Um, you know, I, I can't even begin to tell you the long list of things that, you know, have to be done sometimes takes months and months and months to complete a go live for a very, very high risk environment. Mm. Um, it takes a whole team of, you know, 10, 15 people sometimes just working on the infrastructure to hit every single security corner. Um, in Azure, you know, all the policies you have to set up around role-based access, um, setting up all your network security. Maybe you're setting up express route and you're dealing with, you know, network boundaries and making sure only your 
people on your network within your VPN can get to all the Azure assets, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've got the things you can't lock down behind firewall yet because, you know, maybe there's like a Kubernetes management endpoint. Now there's a new feature in preview that you can lock down behind a firewall. Um, but, you know, then you have to make sure that works with conditional access in Azure. And, you know, we've, you know, again, it, that takes like three different people on our team to come together and sort through the right things with all those new features. But, you know, that's because there's different expertise, right? Conditional access is over here and role-based right. security in Azure and AKS is over here. And then you've got the express route and the networking people over here. And, you know, um, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of work. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Michelle, but I, I don't know that you've said anything that's specifically containerish. This still seems like well, all the same problems for any new app before it goes live. That is true. I think the thing that's added on with containers now is, you know, how do you fit AKS in the middle of that, right? So, for mm-hmm. example, AKS is a, uh, it is, it is not really a PaaS feature, right? It's somewhere of a hybrid between PaaS and IaaS, right? So, what's PaaS is the management plane. When uh, Microsoft manages for you your your Etsy Etsy cluster, you know your your Kubernetes management cluster, and then you get the nodes. So, the nodes are really kind of like generated IaaS for you, right? But if you want custom networking, now you flip the bit and you're more pa- you're more IaaS than not, right? Right. And do you, do you also think there's just less body of knowledge around the correct configurations for containers and and uh, the and the management services like i think vlans and things are pretty well known i think all of this is different when you're running in something like aks mm-hmm. yeah it's not it, it, i think part of it is just knowing your platform right mm-hmm. and the other is not everybody locks down all the way right they take yes. a lot of the default because they think it's good enough and you know what? It might actually be good enough for lots of folks. But when you have high risk environments or where, where, you know, organizations cannot tolerate their risk profile is different, right? They, they just can't tolerate risk. So then what they're going to do is say every corner has, to, you know, every stone has to be, you know, turned. Um, and when you start doing that, you run into interesting things. Um, so I guess that's that's the point there, Richard. Like you you can get a lot of mileage without going as mm-hmm. deep as I just kind of summarized high level. But what's your risk profile? I mean, I know startups are not going to do all that, right? A startup's no. going to they're going to take the the out of the box paths and you know maybe even not even go to a container platform. They're going to use you know why wouldn't they just use uh, app services uh, for containers? Just because uh, it's easier. You get a lot of mileage out of that. But, well, and it's it's super effective, right? Right. But I I, mean, I would think that the reason you go to an AKS is because it is, by default, a secured configuration orchestrator. Yeah, it's going to be secure by default in many ways. You have to find ways to, you know, they're going to lock down and harden those machines, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and then you're going to take that out of the gate and it's going to give you good defaults. It doesn't mean you don't, need to know something, right? You still sure. to go in and configure the app service, uh, uh, you know, uh, to make sure that, you know, you've got, you know, right TLS levels. and Yeah. Uh, I'm just hoping that Microsoft is leading us into the pit of success here, that the yeah. that it's creating a checklist like, go get this cert, configure these things this way, make sure these things are turned off. And then, yeah. you know, I, we get emails from Azure all the time letting us know when we haven't done something yeah. right. That is right. And then if you turn on things like Security Center, right, you're going to mm-hmm. get alerts and notifications of, of VMs that need attention. Um, and, and more and more services are folding into that uh, service, right, so that you get more centralized visibility into those things as well, right? Um, so these are these I'm, are I'm also things. really enjoying, like, the steady stream of messages from, from GitHub letting me know, hey, this isn't the current version of this this library you should upgrade like we really i feel like we're getting more help if you've got it organized yeah we're getting a lot and 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 so that's where you come back to you know again you you get a lot for free you need to know something to make sure you've checked and balanced you know what your needs are with what you got for free and then you've got the more complex environments with either higher risk you know lower risk uh you know, tolerance 
and or just larger organization with lots of security controls and policies to follow. Or, you know, they're used to an on-prem environment, so their IT division is sort of, you know, maybe imposing rules that are more from on-prem, and now you have to teach and learn together. How do we get your risk profile to match more of a cloud-style, mm. um, you know, containerized deployment? How do we, you know, win confidence and and ex- and and ensure that we're, you know, meeting the security controls that make sense, but creating new controls for things that don't fit in the cloud but did work on-prem? Mm-hmm. Like, like even just load testing endpoints is an interesting one, right? Like, uh, I have organizations, you know, that, that, I mean, their dev endpoints are public, right? You can load test right. dev. You can go in and, and run tests against dev. Uh, and, and of course, the APIs are secured, so you still have to have a token. So the risk is limited to exposure of somebody being able to get a token to call that API, right? Um, mm-hmm. But then other organizations are like, nope, we're not going to let that be public. It's got to be within network. You got to be on VPN, right? Mm-hmm. But you could still do that testing in the cloud. And it's so much easier to do it in the cloud. You just stand up more instance, make a separate copy, but right. strictly control access to it. Like I just, I'm really having a tough time justifying this stuff being on-prem as quote unquote more secure. I don't buy it. Well, no, at, what I just said though, is that it has to be on VPN, not on-prem. Right. I'm saying that they want to lock down access to dev, test, stage, you know, no yeah. public endpoints except for prod blessed. So that's what I meant. And and you're right. On-prem is not an argument. Yeah. On-prem but, is not an argument. No, no. I, I think it's really interesting that I do have people saying, well, I don't want to put it in the cloud because I feel like I'm more mm-hmm. secure in my own data center. I'm like, I really? Yeah. This is usually a legacy position, but, yeah. but to be fair, part of it is the organization getting comfortable with the compliance posture, whatever regulatory uh, posture they have to have, what their risk profile feels like. And, you know, there are people in their org they trust who have been managing these things for years and years. And those people are the ones they're, you know, looking to get comfy. And right. getting comfy takes time. In the meantime, you're trying to keep the wheels on an existing running app that is, you know, fully loaded, right, with with activity. So I get the problem. And, and I do yeah. think that it becomes at that point an investment, a decision by an organization to make a, a conscious investment in going forward here, right? Well, and, and I think I got to think that Microsoft helps you from an audit perspective saying, look, look, this is all the security stuff they've done. This is the compliance they've done. So, mm-hmm. But I, I yeah. get what you're saying. Is that if you've gone through an audit process with your existing infrastructure and you know how much pain that was, you're probably not that excited to do it again for the cloud. You know, my, 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 the way I argue about this with customers is, you know, look, do you, how many DBA guys do you have or security guys who are at the ready 24 seven to fix any potential threats or threats just like you've been attacked, right? How do you, how do you fix that? Uh, if your guy's asleep, or you know your your security person is asleep, it's going to take them possibly eight nine hours before they can respond to that. Whereas Azure, you know, cloud providers their their job twenty four seven is to staff people watching for those kinds of uh, breaches. And you know, knock on wood, hasn't really happened so far. Right. No, I and I think people are coming along to that you know, understanding, I, I almost wonder if really the real problem isn't so much getting to that point. It's, do we know how to configure our cloud correctly? And I think that is a fair problem to state and getting to the point where you understand all the things your organization has to do to know you've hit it. Like think about the layers of security and even just disaster recovery that have to be executed on the drills you should run, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to make sure that you haven't left any gaping holes. And, mm. and, and here's the real, actually, and here's the real problem. It's that, you know, I, I, I sadly know of people that are out there in production with, you know, for years now and, and, and literally probably really bad practices committing passwords into C, into their, you know, source repositories and keys and, 
pee spray all over the place. And, you know, people do it, right? People have really bad security practices and they survive. They yep. survive for a long time. Um, so size of org matters when you start thinking about the cost it takes to really lock all this stuff down, all the way down to the to the containers. And, you know, by the way, containers matter too, right? Because we, you know, when you're running containers um, and, and you're, you know, choosing a base image and you're, you know, trying to make sure it's hardened, right? Removing all of the uh, unnecessary services on the Linux container. Uh, after you've taken your base image from Microsoft, you run a bunch of scripts, right? To make sure you've locked it down further, following good practices. Uh, and even when you do that, you're going to have tools that scan containers saying, uh, you know, you haven't done your APT get for a while. You haven't updated the patching on the container. So you have to have a process for that now, right? And, and then you've got the intra-container communication needing to be TLS. Well, not everybody requires that. Some people say it's good enough to just have TLS to the node. Um, yep. Again, depends on the posture of the company. The more secure you want to be at every single layer, um, the, the the more money and time it's going to cost you to get there. And it must mean that on the other side, the more your organization can lose if you make a mistake. Yeah, the risks. Hmm. Right? There is an ROI here. I So I guess the other question is, when it's all said and done, is it cheaper to be in the cloud for these high security processes than it is to try and get your own data centers to that level? Absolutely. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you say that unequivocally because I, I, I sort of feel that way. Absolutely it is. But you, but you have to do it carefully because you can't just throw stuff in the cloud and have it be secure, right? You will be positioned right. for success if you use good defaults that come, you know, with the actual, let's say, base solution, right? I mean, you know, SQL Server PaaS, you know, TDE is on, right? Cosmos is all TLS. Right. Um, you know, things are encrypted at rest by by default. Um, but you can still make stupid mistakes, right? You sure. can connect things incorrectly. You can have, you know, secrets in the wrong spot. Yeah. You could forget to turn on a search. You can, you know, you, you may... Right. It's easy to make mistakes. There's still a possibility right. of making mistakes. Although, again, I, I've always been impressed with the warnings I've gotten from Azure. Yeah. It's just like, 100%. You know, this mm -hmm. doesn't seem right. Right. It may be a few hours after you made the mistake, but at least it's only a few hours. Right. And and to be fair, that's what people should be encouraged to do is, you know, I think a bigger mistake people make is they deploy, let's say, smaller orgs, and then they don't watch it. Like, yeah. they deploy stuff and and... They don't actually look at the logs on a regular basis to see if there's anything weird or interesting. They don't look at Security Center, right? They're not watching for the alerts. They're, they're not putting the, the person responsible for that and, and giving them the time they need to do that role. And that would be more valuable in, in some ways than that person, you know, pushing out new work is, is really learning and watching the system's behavior both from a security posture or, or security reporting perspective mm -hmm. and also mm -hmm. from a log and sort of, you know, can I understand what's happening in the system? How's the load look? How does the, you know, performance per request look? How does, how do I see logs that look intelligent if I'm trying to debug something? You mentioned debugging earlier with the Solo IO tool. Solo IO is a really cool company, actually. I know some people that are there that, also previously were at Docker, people I, I like a lot. And, um, you know, putting tools in place that, that support, you know, debugging are, is, is really huge and really important. And I, I, I like to argue you should debug with your logs, but that doesn't mean tools sometimes couldn't be helpful as well, like for those cases where you didn't have the logs yet, right? Right. Yeah. Sure. Right. So. Monitoring and watching is, is super important. And in containers, you know, just to bring it back there, because you're right, Richard, a lot of stuff we've talked about has been really about general good practices around securing your cloud and getting, you know, things eventually deployed, not only the containers, but everything else. Um, but, but for containers, the visibility is so ridiculously important around what is going on um, performance-wise, like what kind of 
requests? Are we, are we hitting this API endpoint more than that API endpoint? From where, right? Third parties, what are they accessing versus internal? Um, you know, which ones are producing more errors? Which ones are, you know, having uh, performance degradation over time? Uh, building out telemetry that works that gives you that info is is huge, right? So sometimes API management, for example, could help you with those things, giving you some telemetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we get back to tools versus do it yourself, right? So good examples, um, things like you know container sidecars are really popular right now, right? So there's tools like Aqua that right. you can install agents on your AKS nodes and. And uh, that agent will monitor containers at runtime and look for issues like the APT get thing I just said, you know, and then they'll have like an SLA window, like within 14 days, if you don't update it, we're going to take an action, whatever that action is, right? It could be as much as shut the system down, although that's probably bad for the customer. So, yeah, but, but in a case of a risk to data, it's not an unreasonable thing. Right. You know, there are cases. Yeah. And the thing I was going to say about, about sidecars, right? The interesting thing about sidecars, because Solo IO is a sidecar as well, or they have sidecar features, mm-hmm. um, you know, picking one or two that, that, that can do the, the things you need holistically, like I need token security. I don't want developers to have to write that. Um, I know how to make sure they write it correctly because I have a whole team around that. But you know, not everybody has that. So right. sidecar, right? Like get it built in, have it, have it be the entry point, the route into the actual container endpoint. Um, therefore telemetry on top of that. Therefore, um, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, the TLS, right? Between, uh, containers on the, on the box. That's another, uh, you know, kind of agent that runs, right? Providing that feature on the, on the nodes. So. There's a trade-off to these things. You're now using up your container node space to run all the sidecars. Right. And I have more containers running that are going to ask for resources. So I'm going to need mm-hmm. how much memory, how much CPU allocation to each of those. And then, you know, if if I need whatever, 0.5 CPU for every sidecar, and I need to deploy 10, you know, uh, container instances, then... That's 0.5 times 10. So I need another five CPU, right? So how many CPU does each node have? Right. Start doing the math. Like how many containers can you run on a node? It, it, you know, sometimes they only need like 0.2 CPU, 0.1 CPU, but these are things you have to figure out. Those are the drills you have to run, uh, to understand, you know, the profile requirements of the system, which is why it's so important to deploy just like the first set of microservices early on your platform, learn your platform, understand your platform, and then, expand because then you kind of get it right now and it sort of leads us to the whole pricing conversation do you find once folks are up and running are they concerned about the costs or do they find them reasonable well customers that are doing migrations from on-prem are going to find it reasonable usually because they're already Mm -hmm. spending loads of money on hardware and licenses and you know you know they're they're presumably doing a migration because of pain points that are limiting the revenue and they're ready for a growth burst or something like that. Right. Um, and so I think that it, it mileage is always going to vary, right? The cloud can be more expensive for certain things, Yeah. but let's look at what you get in return for that. Everything you've been mentioning too, right. Related to, you know, security alerts and notifications and logs and visibility and dashboards. So, you know, would you want to write all those things yourself? Do you have the skills to to build all that from scratch and manage it yeah. all? Like, you're just going to be you're going to need the same people to run your system, but they're just going to mm-hmm. get better at other stuff once they master the setup in the cloud. They're just going to have more time for the stuff that they should be doing and do it better because you know yeah, more oversight, more of uh, you know how do we get more value from this? Is this optimized? Uh, from right. a pr- pricing perspective, I'm just wondering how many folks are starting to look at dollars per transaction and whether they want to start spending money to reduce those bills. Right. Well, I, I think that that's, that's, there's something to be said for that, right? Like, uh, again, coming back to how, how have we seen customers approach cloud? Sometimes it's, it's just a simple, we know we need to do it. We don't have the people to do on-prem. We have to choose a cloud. 
Azure has great has features and a lot more sort of put you in the pit of success immediately features, right? So it's a right. really good lift. Um, and then for those that want to dive into all the custom networking and on-prem sync with cloud and et cetera, you know, they have people with skills or, or acquire them to do mm-hmm. that. Um, but you can do a lot without going that far with Azure because of all the past features, which is pretty great. Uh, you yeah. get so much. I just got to think you don't get any of the easy projects. They call you in when they've got a hard problem, right? No, I mean, we, we do small projects and large projects, but I, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, when they're the easier projects, it's a little bit maybe lighter on the mentoring because people can take it and run and then they'll just call us for advice. So then you become right. more of a strategic relationship at that point. Um, but sometimes people are just short on people, right? So they, right. they just need someone to be around. And, and so it really varies. But we were talking about something there that, that, you know, I think you were heading on costs. And what I wanted to say is the larger org, what they do is they build an entire, or, or even we've done this for, for some, entire, you know, roadmap projections out four years. Like, okay, you know, this is the amount of staff you have. This is how many, you know, you'll hire in contracting to help get this done. But then instead of increasing your headcount, now these people will be able to do more, et cetera, et cetera. And map it out so you have a roadmap for where's your ROI, hmm. at what point yeah. do you reach it, and at what point does spend start to go down on the con- on the consulting side. And really sort of be strategic around that, plus then the cloud costs, right? Roadmapping out some projections on that and how you're going to phase out of the on-prem costs in relation to the hardware and licensing costs that you have, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of number crunching that goes into those huge strategic lists. And, you know, there's going to be, I mean, I'm not going to say there's fewer of those, but let's just say uh, that's a very intentional type of project. And, you know, we've seen a few of those and we, we, you know, compare that to the very simple sort of smaller projects. And then there's so many ranges in the middle of that. That's probably more common, Mm -hmm. right? Which is, yeah, we sort of swagged our costs, but we know we got to do it. Let's go. Right. Yeah. We want to take our time to go to the cloud, but you know what, let's just take this one piece that we know we could factor and make some, you know, future benefit off of, uh, as an organization, we will be able to increase our revenue stream if we do this one thing. Let's do that one thing. Let's just get that yeah. going. And yeah. then and you do that also well. sound like gateway drugs. Like once they get down that path, they start to see mm-hmm. the more things they can do, then they do more and more mm-hmm. and more. Right. But the message is still do one thing well first and, and get right. your legs. Don't, don't make this into the super project. Like get, have a win, right. get stuff working, get used to it, and then you can move on to the next thing and the next thing. Yeah, because you can't manage hundreds of running containers without experience, understanding where do I go to manage all that. I think right. that I think that I think that is the thing you have to be careful of with also the fact Azure does so much for you so easily. Um, people can kind of get to thinking, ah, oh, well, I don't even have to look at this, but that's wrong, right? You you have to learn the personality of your platform and you have to do be prepared for drills like the drills are things like hey if um you know if a container is is deleted does it restart itself how long does that take right if i um you know have a node go down you know does it you know create a new node and replace it like what's the disaster recovery story on the data right let's do some attempts at the point in time restore and all of that let's see that we know how to do that Fix the hot stuff, right? The what if, the systems down stuff, and and run those drills to be sure that you've got it covered. Uh, how do I roll a new patch out really fast? Let's get our CI/CD mojo going, right? All the way from dev to commit to dev to commit PR to master to that went to the the production. Uh, and what's mm-hmm. our flow for that, right? Like how do we do it fast if we have a hot fix? like a, a real problem, right? You got to look at those drastic scenarios and just make sure you get your leg. Hey, speaking of the next thing, are we going to see you in Vegas? Vegas, yes, baby. Yeah. The show comes out after Vegas. Well, we we had a good time in Vegas, <laughs> didn't we? <laughs> we had a great time. Wasn't that awesome? That was awesome. <laughs> that oh my party God. was great. It was the best, best <laughs> conference, best time seeing everybody. 
ever. Now we have to just live up to our comments here and uh, have a good time in a couple of weeks. Hey, maybe there could be like some sort of after tweet. Hey, how did it really go? <laughs> oh. There will be pictures, was, I'm sure. There will be pictures. Uh, whatever happened to what happens in Vegas? Well, speaking of it that, there. you know what time it is. It's time for a Michelle LaRue Bustamante dirty joke. Do you have one? Well, it doesn't have to be dirty, dirty, does it? Oh, come on. They're always dirty. You've never told a clean joke on this show. There's a layer. There's a layer of dirty. Yeah, there's layers. <laughs> layers. Layers. <laughs> You've never told a clean joke on okay, here's, Rocks. Here, here, I, I, I have a good bar joke. All right, good. This one made me laugh. This one made me laugh. So, uh, guy walks into a bar, a restaurant. He goes to the bartender. He says, how much for a beer? Bartender says, one dollar. Wow. So the customer's totally amazed. He orders a beer and then he asks the bartender, well, how much for a New York sirloin? Side of mashed potatoes in a salad and entire cheesecake for dessert. Mm. Bartender says, five dollars. What? Guy's like, totally, yeah, totally amazed, orders everything. And after he's done the meal, he says, wow, this place is amazing. I, I wish I could meet the owner of this place. Bartender says, oh, well, he's upstairs in his office with my wife. And the guy looks kind of confused. He says, well, what's he doing upstairs in his office with your wife? And he says, the same thing I'm doing to his business. (laughs) 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 I love it. Brilliant. That's awesome. And not one bad word in there. Nope. Exactly. Nope. It's right. All in it's your like mind. clean it. All that one. It's right. In your mind. If you laughed, it's because you have a dirty mind. There you go. It's not my fault. <laughs> I, I got another you know one it. for you. This is kind of funny. Okay. Uh, walking into a bar, Mike said to Charlie, the bartender, "Pardon me, a stiff one. Just had another fight with the little woman." Oh yeah, said Charlie. And how did this one end? Well, when it was over, she came to me on her hands and knees. Really, said Charles. Well, that's a switch. What did she say? She said, come out from under the bed, you little chicken. (laughs) (laughs) I got a joke. You ready for this? So this isn't a dirty joke, but it's a joke. So this magician has been doing magic for years and years and years, and he takes a gig on a cruise ship. And on this cruise ship, he does the, you know, it's like the same show every night, right? So he gets a little bored and a little tired of it, but he doesn't realize that the captain has a parrot and the parrot is in a cage right next to the stage. And after the first show, the parrot doesn't say anything. The second show, now the parrot starts calling out his tricks. Ah, it's under the table. Right. He's got it in his left hand. Right. Right. So now he's just completely ruined. Like, and this goes on the third, the fourth night. All week long, the parrot is just outing his tricks. So he's completely shot. He's devastated. Now, on the last night, they run aground on a sandbar or something, and the boat sinks, fills with water, drops like a stone. And the the magician finds himself floating on a piece of the boat, staring across this piece is the parrot. And they just stare into each other's eyes. They're just looking at each other for hours. Finally, the parrot says, all right, I give up. What'd you do with the ship? (laughs) Where's the ship? (laughs) You got me. You got me. That's a great, uh, remember your tell the end of the joke only, the last one. All right. Yes. I give up. Where did you put the ship? I give up. Where's the ship? <laughs> Most of us take the camel into town to said, get girls. And then she and then she said, "Come out from under the bed, you little chicken." <laughs> While you were upstairs having fun, we were down here having hot buttered corn on the cob. Chunks <laughs> is my dog. <laughs> Going all the way back to your first show. All right. Well, we got to get out of here. Michelle, thanks. It was enlightening. It's always a pleasure. Even though I feel like I'm drinking from the fire hose listening to you talk, I know some of that got in there by osmosis. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. It was fun. Talk to you soon. See you. Oh, wait. Saw you in Vegas. Saw you in Vegas. Saw you in Vegas. (laughs) All right. And we'll see you next time 
on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a